millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Friday's History Hack. This one's exciting. We have an oral history masterclass from the granddaddy of oral history. Mr. Peter Hart. He spent nigh on four decades at the Imperial War Museum. Oh, Man and boy in charge, solely in charge of assembling the oral history archive. No, that one, no, Peter <laughs> Jackson thanked you during that film. Did he buggery? <laughs> I wasn't in charge. Someone was always in charge of me. <laughs> well, nominally, being in charge of you, Pete, is a challenge. Um, and actually, Pete, when we just dialed in, you were reading a Batman comic. I was, because I like Batman. <laughs> Diversifying in your retirement. I am, I am. History of Batman, it's great. It's just got everything a man needs. Violence. Wings. <laughs> <laughs> wings. Gary was wings. reading a... Women's Weekly. I was. It, it was really exciting. It's got a very nice chicken recipe. Why is there that... no fuss chicken? What's not fussy about it? There's no chicken in it. Excellent. <laughs> you can't get simpler than that. Right. Guys, how's lockdown? Peterkins, you're just walking around aimlessly on the streets of North London and getting lost, aren't you? I am. I'm, uh, I'm uh, yes, trying to do eight miles a day, keep myself slim and lovely in contrast to Gary. <laughs> I, <you know. laughs> this is solely your it's motivation, isn't it? Yeah, this is your motivation <laughs> for dieting. And My sole doing. motivation for dieting and giving up alcohol is to annoy everybody else I know. How many friends you got left? <laughs> My family have stopped speaking to me. Gary, how's that... lockdown? Oh, well, actually, it's quite an improvement, really, because um, both my wife and my son have both said well, what, how lovely it is for them having me around all the time. That's Even a lie. Disbelieving. That's just, that's just not true. <laughs> oh. I've met you. I've met Janet. She can't stand him. <laughs> no, I've been uh, I've been turning my hand to DIY. I made a vegetable trough yesterday. That was a coffin. Yeah, I've seen the picture. It does look like because Janet's lying down next to it. It does look like he's off her and he's getting rid of the body. Yeah, today I've been digging a very big hole. <laughs> you probably won't be the first on this lockdown. Anyway, we're here to talk about oral history, um, and because Peterkins is such an expert on oral history, we're going to tell you uh, how you can make oral history yourself but things you should really look out for it's not pete just as simple is it as sitting down in a chair and going history me no it's not you 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 have to think about what you're doing and why you're doing it so you you, you need to understand your subject you don't need to know it all but you need to understand it and you need to, to to know what you're trying to get out of it 
so uh, you, you have to have a plan. Um, a pro- I mean, we often used to have a project paper, but eventually when you've done it as long as I did, you, you sort of get to know what you need to ask. And you always um, used to go to their houses, didn't you? Always, because if you think about it... That always? Was, uh, oh, well, when, except when I interviewed those who weren't safe at home. Yeah, you interviewed <laughs> me at work. <laughs> Yes, I didn't feel safe at your home. <laughs> Is that because of the presence of the coffins and the large holes in the back garden? Well, it's this farting dog, the not <laughs> farting wife. I want to make it entirely clear that Janet doesn't fart. Uh, but but the dog does. And then there's a sort of serial killer son locked in a room that no one's ever seen. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think actually he just walked past in the background of the video. Either that or there's a got... burglar in your house, Gary. No, that was got... Janet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> she, she's she's struggling with lockdown and haircutting. So she walks around in a hood all the time. <laughs> so Pete, you would go to their houses. Why is that? Oh, because they're 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 at home there. To, to state the obvious, uh, people feel you know, and uh, they don't have to travel. When you're in your eighties and nineties, or actually when you're in your sixties, uh, it's it's it, it's tiring to travel. Uh, and, and so I used to go to them. Most of the ones I interviewed weren't there. I used to interview where I wanted to go. So that's obviously the north of England, where everybody nice lives. Um, and uh, and it, it's just a lot better to interview in a home. And it, it's quite weird. When I listen to the interviews now, and I did a lot when preparing my, my book, Voices from the Front, which sold no copies whatsoever. I think um, we might mention that a few times today, but yeah, go on. Well, the fact it didn't well, sell. The fact it didn't <laughs> sell, yeah. <laughs> What distinguishes it from all your other books? <laughs> I'll tell you what, it's got a picture of me on it. And it was the worst selling book. And the idiots put a picture of me on it. And I your, put it down to that. Your face is quite scary. Well, it isn't. I'm not good looking, no. Not like think... Gary. Gary is the sex magnet and eye candy of our podcasts. Yes, our, our oral podcasts. Yes, because this is a this is a mashup, isn't it? Because guys, just quickly, while we're on this subject, what podcast is it that you produce? Oh, I'll leave this to Gary to say. That's, this is largely because Peter can never say it. Can't remember it's, it. And it's it's very difficult. It's Peter Hart's military history podcast. What's that? Call it Pete. Oh, I'd just call it Pete and Gary, <laughs> or Pete and Gaz. <laughs> Pete and Gary talk bollocks. You see, I could have remembered that. Well, that's one of the podcast titles. That's in about (laughs) three or four months' time. Well, when we're desperate. (laughs) When we do Donkey's Bollocks, I think it's called. Yeah, uh, that'd be an in-depth analysis into the historiography of the First World War. Is that after Gary finishes uh, writing a book about the history of army latrines? Oh, that's 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 our secret project. What's it going well, to be called? Secret. Well, not now it isn't. What's it going to be called? He can never remember. I can. <laughs> and then the poll broke. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, that's Speaking brilliant. Which, that, where's, where's Alina? Do we need to wake her up? No, she's Sparko. I think I can, I can see her dribbling on her desktop. Um, Pete? Always research your subject before you go, yeah? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. but one thing is uh, you, you just need to know history generally and, and what people are like rather than the specifics because, of course, they know what they're talking about. Uh, you don't have to know all of it. But what, what you really need to know is to, to know enough to keep them on track. Uh, you know, if Gary can't remember basic training, if Gary can't remember much about anything, then you can help him by saying, you, did you do bayonet training? You know, 
which is a leading I, question. I love that you're giving us a lecture on keeping people on track after the amount of waffle that's come out on this podcast so far. <laughs> well, you're just not very good at it. I'm not doing it. <laughs> Shut up, Alina. Do you know, I quite like the next one. Um, I don't know how good Alex and I would be at this, is don't debate or argue. You weren't there. <laughs> well, that's the tr- that that... <laughs> That is absolutely the point, because you weren't there. And uh, if you try and argue with them then, you'll either really annoy them and they'll tell you to F off or uh, or, they'll, or, 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 or it'll just degenerate into you telling them what happened. Uh, the historian's role comes later. Your job is to interview them as best you can and get what they think happened. Uh, and then as a historian, you go through it later on and go, that's bollocks, or... Oh, I didn't know that. Perhaps he's right. And then you can check it out. So, yeah, that, that's a quite an important rule. And not knackering one. them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd like to have knackered Gary. <laughs> well, another another really important one is to not come along to the interview, having walked into a lamppost in Liverpool with a huge sore on your nose, isn't it, Peter? Oh dear. Oh, tell us more. Tell us more. I need to know more now. Tell us. I'd been out drinking with a friend of mine called Jimmy Sheehan and another punk rocker. And, uh, he said, I'll get you a taxi home. It's raining. I said, no. I said, it's all right. It went off. Anyway, the glasses all got a bit wet and I can't see out my left eye anyway. And I didn't see this lamppost leap out and attack me. So I had this big red blotch on my nose and Gary. <laughs> Gary commented on this in the pub. I best remember it in the pub by prodding me on it and going, does that hurt? <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's basically your nanny, isn't he? Well, yes, he's sort of like a nanny. Yes, I, I like him to clean up afterwards. Me, after me, yeah. Uh, so, uh, so where were? But see, I'm trying to keep you on track. I'm <laughs> trying to keep you muffling. on track. Oh, I'm trying to keep you on track, Gary. So, stop you... that, Gary. Stop. <laughs> I can see you, Gary. That's illegal. Gary's looking, now he's dogs, gone back to his dogs. Richard Van Emden book. Now the dog's just come in and stinks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, oh, so no, we're, no, talking about, we're talking about length. You, you, no, 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 we've got to interrupt you. You ought to have a dog in your podcast because it's great when they fart and you've got the whole team of people in the room laughing try, and <laughs> trying to avoid the stench coming from the animal's arse. Good old Fred. Sorry. Yeah. I do apologise. Could we continue now? Yes, let ideal length of a session. <laughs> uh, uh, two hours is is normal. Uh, uh, over ninety, hour and a half probably. Two hours for someone about Gary's age. Fully enough, back to ninety minutes for uh, people between twenty and thirty because they have no attention span. Uh, but but two hours is generally about right. That's a lovely doggy there. <laughs> oh, that is a nice. I love. It. We're talking about attention span. <laughs> You're now pressing over a leader's Westie. <laughs> but you keep going back till you're finished, don't you? You don't try and cram everything into those two hours. That's just the optimum you... length of a session. Now, here I was spot because I was working for the War Museum who paid me. Uh, so there was no pressure to finish, whereas freelancers often feel they have to finish because, they, you know, they can't go back to Scotland. It costs them a fortune. But I could just keep going, you know, until I finish. Uh, a, a good interview is normally about eight hours long. Gary's was about five hours five hours um uh but to the longest of 30 35 hours uh you know and uh some of them are great they're just great they really are joe murray's the standout first world war one accession number 8201 if you go on the war museum's website joseph murray iwm that gets it out 
It's brilliant. He remembers everything. And I forgot everything. Well, Gary was a special case. <laughs> Wasn't Gary only in the army for about a week anyway? Gary was interesting because um, I, I found out that he'd been in the army and I, I, I decided with my know-it-all military historian wanker approach that uh, the army had missed Gary's potential. Now there's a pussycat on the team. <laughs> I've got no attention space. <laughs> and I decided, oh, 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 there's been some terrible witchcraft and Alex has turned into a cat. That's nope, she's still out there. But I decided that they missed Gary's potential. That Gary, you know, as he was a financial controller or what he was, what were you? Uh, uh, he was I had a commercial then, I think. Of Transport for London, which is a really big job that... The army had missed his potential. So I decided to go and do this interview. And he said, no, 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 I was a complete and utter wanker. I was, you know, useless soldier, all the rest of it, blah, blah, blah. That's not entirely true. But I went to interview him, and it took, for what, five and a half hours, Gary, uh, three or four sessions, uh, very good, good, except for him prodding my nose. Uh, and uh, at the end of it, after hearing the tales of drunkenness, debauchery, and the rest of it, I decided that the army had it spot on right. <laughs> Gary... <laughs> <laughs> bloody useless and the only thing that rescued him was his, his father died that sort of woke him up in life and he became the uh, captain of industry that we all know and love today Lance Corporal of Industry Lance Corporal of Industry how many colonels did you have working for you how, come uh, on, how many lieutenant colonels three at one stage well that's a brigadier so brigadier Bane oh, I told that to David Barron he, he looked somewhat shocked he was a lieutenant colonel. <laughs> uh, actually, this weekend, as part uh, of this, Alina just fell. Thing. I just want to point out that Alina fell asleep during that last anecdote. Of mine. I did. did not. I am she here. Did. I'm did. awake. I'm ready because I want to start the last point. Oh, what's the Can last? Point? What's the last point? I don't know. I've lost track of where we are now. We did a lot oh. while you were asleep. I should oh, no. say we did. Yes, we did. We're on page eight now. <laughs> Pete, oh, shit. Pete, pay attention. Focus. Yeah. Talk to us about the controversy of interviewing people and using those interviews for history. Well, people, people, especially academics or knobheads, as Gary calls them, I think that's a little untoward. <laughs> and some of them, like uh, Spencer, Spencer, he's not Tracy, is it? Spencer Jones. He's I was not thinking. Knobby. I was no, he's a great bloke, and some some academics are great, and some of them are knobheads. Um, they sort of sneer, uh, you know, they, they, they talk about veterans general issue. They talk about historians as copyright, copy, copywriters or whatever, copy something's typists. And it's a sort of knee jerk reaction all the time. It, get, it gets right on my tits because most of them have never listened to oral history. They've never sat down and listened to an 18 hour interview. They know <laughs> who can blame them. What are you reaching for, Gary? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and the thing is, I like to go on the attack. Fundamentally, I'm an attack dog when it comes to, to debate. And I would say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, Sunshine, you're only going to use contemporary sources, are you, Mr. Bloody Clever Clogs? But contemporary sources can be away with the fairies. And when I say away with the fairies, I mean right away with the fairies. It, it's just... It just drives me mad. You see people go, nah, 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 I looked in the war diaries, in the war diaries. Well, the war diaries are written by the intelligence officer or the adjutant. And the reason they write them is to pretend that nothing ever, ever went wrong, uh, you know, in the unit. So whatever happens, so it's always a unit on the right. The British Army report from right to left, 
it's always a unit on the right that's run away. And we conformed. So you read the raw diary. If you read the war diary, you think they conformed. It's just bollocks. The, the lads are also dying, always, always dying to get at the enemy. Now, when, 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 uh, Gary was in the army, the only enemy he was dying to get at was senior NCOs and officers. Is that right, Ruth? Is that right, Gary? You said you weren't going to say that. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> let, yes. let, let's, let's look at diaries. If Alina keeps a diary, right? I don't keep a diary, by the way. Nobody. I don't, I don't keep a diary, but go on. I'm, I'm imagining Alina's diary now. But it would Ooh. be, you're at the centre of your own little poxy universe, aren't you, Alina? So you see <laughs> everything. You see everything through your eyes. Which seem to be unnaturally narrowed at the moment. Were you drinking last night? Um, oh, they're open now. <laughs> but the point is, you are at the centre of your universe. Everybody's at the centre of your universe. I told Gary, I've got this theory that the whole world is in my imagination because when I retired from work, the whole lot of you packed up work to keep me company. Now, Gary says this is some sort of pandemic, but I think <laughs> you're all in my imagination. None of you actually exist. It's, it's getting rather like the Matrix now, Pete. Oh, right, sorry. That criticism <laughs> can be made of oral history because, you know, you're only talking about your own experience, what you see in front of you. So you've got to look at everything, multiple sources. That's Gary. Exactly. That's a great point, Gary. It is a good Gary, give us, tell us about Private Albert. Give us this example that Pete's got. So there's this Private Albert Faraday of the 15th Londons, and there's two yeah. different bits of testimony from him that kind of illustrates how people might have motives for not writing testimony. down the truth. <laughs> oh, yeah, we'll get to why it shouldn't be called testimony. All right. Stuff, yeah. what okay. he wrote. So, so this is letters. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the first one, the clue's in the first three words. So he starts with, um, my dearest mother, I did not have the opportunity of posting the letter I wrote yesterday so that these two will arrive together. At present, I'm in a very comfortable trench about five miles from the front line. So, of course, I'm as safe as houses. I'm only here for a few hours, though, as I'm going a good way further back to a little village where I intend to have a good rest. So and actually, Pete, I've highlighted all the words yep. there that are all really positive to his yeah. mother. Pete, tell us what yep. the problem is with that. Well, the problem is this, and that's letters depend on who you write them to. So if I was writing to uh, my mum or my girlfriend, say I was at Gallipoli and I was suffering from dysentery, all right? Yeah. Uh, really bad dysentery. Would you write home, dear mum, shat myself three times yesterday. <laughs> um, you know, I've got shit from my fucking ankles to me, me, uh, me, uh, the top of my tunic. Uh, I'm covered in the bloody stuff. I don't know what to do. I, I, you know, and now my head started hurting and the doctor says I've got a paratyphoid. Only good thing is I've also got jaundice, so my face has gone yellow. You know, and, and. Funnily enough, when I was in the army, my mum wrote a letter very similar to that to me. <laughs> Gary, you've got Sorry. another letter that Faraday wrote to someone else, haven't you? Ah, uh, can I just make, just before we go, so the thing well, is, if you're if you're writing to your mum, you don't tell her what's really happening. If you're writing to your dad, you might tell him a bit, or your brother. If you're writing to your mates, you might actually tell them what's going on. And this is a letter that Faraday wrote to his best mate. Yeah, Go, Gary. Says, I, I cannot settle down to write a good letter this week, as I've had such a horrible shaking and have not quite got over it. On Sunday morning, I was digging a communication trench near the front line 
when Fritz got wind of it. For three hours, he shelled us. Unfortunately, there were one or two direct hits which killed two of our boys and wounded several. One of them, a chum of mine, was killed. It was hell. How I came through without a scratch, I don't know. Even if I wanted to describe all I saw, I could never do justice to the scene, but I don't want to. If ever I was sick of this war, it was when I first saw this place. If only everyone knew of horrors of this war, it wouldn't last another five minutes. Happily, Mother didn't know I was even in the trenches, and you are the only one I shall ever tell. And precise to the point, isn't it? And what Which happened is actually to him? true, because he was, he was killed the next day. So that's just... from the connect. From Canadian archives, those letters I picked them up there. He wrote them the same day, the two letters. And you see, this is the point with it's the same point with diaries. You change your mind. Uh, say, say, uh, Alex keeps doing first world water. Alina, you'll you'll sort of go, dear diary, what a bloody cow that Alex is. God, I hate her. Keeps banging on about the first world war and sodding Georgia, sodding fifth. Why do I have to put up with it? Why can't we talk about the poles and that lovely second world war? And 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 and. and <laughs> That's, Are you depends. in my head? <laughs> and then another day, another day, you might think, oh, Alex is being really nice to me today. I really like that, Alex. She's lovely. And so, let, you know, your unlikely. diary can change. Oh, that's, that, is, is that is unlikely, Gary. Uh, but letters are the same. It depends who you write it to. And that just shows the point. You can't always trust contemporary sources especially if taken in isolation and that's my real point my point about all these war diaries uh, uh war diaries diaries uh, letters is it's a bit taking them in isolation as the gospel truth and and perhaps we should move to what exactly oral history is good for i don't know whether you want to or not whether we you're taking the words right out of my mouth i was about to ask you i was about to say look we've talked about the negative and the bad side what is it actually good for tell uh, us petykins i will uh Look, if you do a proper interview, you can get cracking, cracking detail. Just detail about the mundanities of life. Uh, I used to, I, I explained it once as saying it was, uh, the, the nitty gritty fundamentals or the zeitgeist of the age. Then I realized I wasn't quite sure what zeitgeist meant when, when I was. You know. <laughs> Gary's yeah. got his fingers down his throat. <laughs> yeah, Me neither. Gary, I have yeah. no idea what that word means. So it's, if means someone like a, kindly ex- explain it. Means it means like a great. sort of sausage that's peculiarly shaped. And that just defines the age. Big sausage or little sausage? <laughs> so we had enough Spencer. sausage on that Pompeii interview yesterday. Let's move on from oh, sausage. Oh, right. Well, let's move away from sausage. <laughs> now, look, can I give you an example about Please how do. all this goes? Right. So let's take food. Uh, so one bloke would say, oh, yeah, well, say uh, a Gary-like person might say, yes, I had food. It was, uh, I had bully beef. And I had McConaughey's. I can't remember what they were. Right. Well, it's bloody useless. It's man or beast, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Second person might say, oh, we had uh, bully beef. McConaughey's. Uh, bully beef was corned beef. It came in tins. You opened it with a little key. Blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, McConaughey's tin, blah. We also, and go through all the food they had. Bacon rolled up in a tin in the fat. How you'd make a pudding out of the fat and, the, you know, all the rest of it. And that would be detailed. Somebody else would tell you an amusing story. My favourite, and I had it three or four times to the level it might be apocryphal. It's the only thing I have in common as a, as a, when I was a student living in a crappy flat in Liverpool, uh, where I supported Liverpool Football Club, who are a magnificent football club, which are far superior to any other football club. In this, this here is an example of how oral testimony slash opinion can be total rubbish. Carry on, get back to the war. 
But you're from Luton, Peter. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Gary. We'd like to point out that he is a plastic scouser. So, the only thing... <laughs> The only thing in common was that when I tried to open a bully beef tin, right, I used to come home drunk from the pub and hungry. You know that feeling. Gary, you always know that feeling. You don't have to be in the pub to be hungry. And, uh, <laughs> and, and you try and open a bully beef can. It's got that sort of key. And the key falls off or you lose it. So you reach for a knife. Well, in the first world war, and what happened was I cut myself. And you interview a first world war veteran, they tell this great story. Oh, I got my bayonet 18 inches long and I opened it with my thing. And you'll never guess what I slipped. Oh, look at it now. You can see the scar goes right at my fucking wrist. Look at it. Look at it. Oh, bled like a stuck pig. You can believe it. And then they go on like this. And then at the end of it, they say, Four years in the army. It was the only time I was wounded. Bloody bully beef can. <laughs> that is a funny story. But the next bit is uh, an interesting detail, which is you. one bloke told me about how they... What do you do with your rubbish, your tin cans? You bury them. Where do you bury them? Doesn't matter. Bury them in the trench. Bury them. But a bad unit would throw the tin cans out in front. How did you know they were a bad unit? Because they don't patrol in no man's land. Because you don't throw tin cans into no man's land if you're going to patrol there. You see noisy. what I mean? Hmm? Because they're noisy. So if you trip over a tin can yeah, in no yeah. man's land, you're going to get killed. So you could tell that a unit that throws its tin cans all about in front of them isn't going patrolling. Now, I believe here we're going to play a little... T- what you're going to hear now is uh, Lieutenant... John Reimer Jones, Royal Field Artillery. And it's about meteorological corrections. Now, all I want you to take from this story is the hero of the story is the old retired major. Well, he's not the hero. He's a bloody idiot. And it's people like him that meant that the Royal Artillery in 1916 weren't accurate enough. Do you see what I mean? So listen to that that thing and see what I mean. You know, okay? So we're going to have that. Right. A little bit of silence. Senior Subaltern said, I'm going to the Major, he's along in his dugout, to ask him if I can put on the meteor corrections on the guns. And when he got there, the Major, who was a regular, Mark you, an Irishman, he said, my boy, this is war. This is practical stuff. Forget all that nonsense they taught you at the shop. If it's cold, cock her up a bit. Right, you've just heard that tape. Now, the other, the other, the, the, the thing about it is, oral history could give you a great idea of what something's like. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of, so, there is a problem with fighting. I'm definitely going to cover this. Because Gary, you'd be good at this with your, uh, you were a boxer and, uh, you've been in pubs, I believe. Have you ever been to a pub, Gary? Yes, you have, I think. Uh, and uh, people don't remember actual fighting that well. You know, they go into a sort of trance or they forget what's happening or they, they have to be told. And if you think of police officers, if the police officer bursts into the pub and there's just been a punch-up and asks everybody what's happened, no one can remember exactly who started it. You know, and, and everything gets a bit vague. And that's what oral history is like with action. But what they can do is sort of give you a great, feeling about it. Now, I've got three on quick succession, so I'm just going to introduce one and then two and then three. The first one is Corporal George Ashurst of the 1st Battalion Lancashire Fusiliers. It's very short, and it, it gives you, it just, it's his voice. 
gives you the idea. So they're going over the top and past this wounded man. So just have a listen to this. You can over the top, you know. I'm on top then. It's partly blown down, you know. And I'm just stepping on top. And there's a corporal line there. Oh, and all his shoulder gone. All he was blown away, you know. I think he'd been hit with what they call a whiz-bang. And he looks up at me as I passed him. Go on, corporal, he says, get the bastards. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And now... This next one is also George Asher's. And this reminds me of, uh, I've only seen this film once, but it's the start of Private Ryan, Saving Private Ryan, where you get the, bu- the bullets on the beach. And this is Asher's describing the sound bullets make when they hit your body, or not yours, the person next to you. When a bullet hits somebody against you, you know, you could hear it hit him. You hear him groan and go down. And the third one is back to Rhymer Jones again. Uh, and Rhymer Jones was a tough bloke. He later on commanded the Palestine police, a fine body of men in certain ways. They were the ex-black and tans, a lot of them. Lovely, lovely people uh, who treat you with the respect that you deserved if you were on their side. If you weren't <laughs> on their side, they'd eat you with a big stick if you're lucky. Um, so Rhymer Jones is talking about a close escape from a shell. The next thing I knew was this blasted thing coming over, you see, I thought it's going to hit me. Now, this is a question that I always talk about in the matter of courage. Now, if you're with your men, you probably become a VC because you're too ashamed to show fun. But when you're on your own, when I saw this thing coming, I was running this way, and then it was going to come, you see, and it actually fell a bit short blew me up with tons of stuff and I was chucked onto the top, you see. And a sergeant pulled me in and I was suffering from shell shock. I was rather silly, you know. Okay, so 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 that's uh, those three. So that that that's the sort of thing oral history can do. It could give you details. But fundamentally, if you listen to the oral history of Gallipoli, the one thing that comes out isn't the date of the fourth battle of the third <laughs> The fact that you've written a massive book and you can't even name the battle is quite disturbing. Oh, it's a great book. It. Oh, shush up. Uh, you, <laughs> it's, not the, it's not the fact that they can't remember that it started at 7.30 in the morning or 12.30 at all or whatever. What's important, what they all talk about Gallipoli is dysentery. You see, you miss it out of letters. You miss it out of uh, diaries. 
you know, the diary will say, had a spot of the old trouble. Now, you might think, God, what was his missus doing out there? No, no. That, what it is, what it is, is dysentery. And they're shitting themselves. Or they've got to, I mean, one bloke I interviewed told me he went to the loo 14 times in the night. Now, his ass must have been red raw. You know, and no toilet, they talk about the fact there's no toilet paper. You know, this isn't in the histories. No toilet paper. So what do you wipe your hand with? You use vegetation. Vegetation glibly soon runs out. So what do you do then? Not only Be that, sand. but all vegetation, vegetation at Gallipoli tries to kill you. It's all spiky and horrible. It, <laughs> it is. So can you imagine the state of your ass? You know, I mean, uh, it's just awful. And, and the thing is, people say, well, that's a bit crude. I do wish, Peter, you wouldn't talk about things like this. But one of the points about it is if you don't keep a grounding on things like what happens to people when they're ill at war, like dysentery at Gallipoli, then you end up with, like, medieval warfare. And for a lot of my life, I believe medieval warfare was knights wandering around in armour, being all chivalric and, and going, like on the telly. Well, that's not what it's like. as well. They had just as much dysentery and all the rest of it as, as the rest of it. So oral history can really bring that sort of stuff home to you. Uh, and, and I know there was one book on Palestine where the bloke, uh, I, I, I'm not going to mention his name, Woodward, uh, <laughs> but, uh, he, uh, he, he boasts he didn't use any, any oral history. No contempt, nothing other than contemporary sources. The result is the book doesn't have dysentery in the index. Palestine. But also, but also sorry, Peter, oral history, I'm thinking about the Great War series BBC did in the 60s. Oral history isn't just about the soldiers, is it? There was a woman that sort of resonates with me. I think her name was Kitty or Katie mm. Mortar. Exactly. Oh. Um, who, whose husband was killed on the Battle of the Somme. And there she was 50 years later, still wearing black. So it, it isn't, oral history isn't just about the soldier. It's about the social aspects as well. There's two questions in that. It is, but it's kind of like what you can see as well, or hear in the way that someone projects the story to you. <laughs> Three questions. <laughs> well, I'll answer one of them. Yes. And where were you born? Yes, no, and maybes. <laughs> but the, yeah, I mean, it's, um, I remember Eckersley. I think her name's Kitty Eckersley, but that may be a maiden name. I mean, yeah, it's a maiden name. Her husband was, uh, John Mortar, I believe his name was. There you go. Uh, and, and that was a, a, an emo, and quite famous bit of oral history as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and we interviewed her as well. Margaret Brooks, my old boss, a long suffering and patient woman. Um, uh, we did, we did her as well. She was, uh, she was quite marvelous. The one I want to play that illustrates this is, uh, Bombardier John Palmer. This is last of the quotes, uh, uh and uh, it, he was, uh, who is John Palmer? Well, he's Bombardier. He's got the DCM, Distinguished Conduct Medal, for his conduct at Mons, losing the Somme, the, the rest of it. And this recording is when he was right at the end of his tether. The day before, he'd thought of sticking his leg under uh, uh, a general service wagon, get his, break his leg to get out of the front. Uh, and he chickened out. He said he was the biggest coward he'd ever heard of and then uh and then the next day he's going through forward to the line to mend the wire you know he mended the wire forward to um uh well to the forward observation post of the artillery a crucial job in support of the infantry it had to be done and this is his recording now now this is slightly longer this is about three and three minutes two minutes two and a half minutes something like that anyway i had to listen to people talk for 30 hours you can manage two and a half hour two and a half minutes of john palmer well, it was mud, mud everywhere, mud in the trenches, 
mud in front of the trenches, behind the trenches. Every shell hole was a sea of filthy, oozing mud. Well, I suppose there's a limit to everything, but what with the mud of the Somme and the mud of Passchendaele, to see men keep on sinking into the slime, dying in the slime, I think it absolutely finished me off because I knew for three months before I was wounded that I was going to get it. I knew jolly well. The only thing was I thought I was going to get killed. And every time I went out to mend the wire, I think I was the biggest coward on God's earth. It was somewhere near, near midnight, I think. I'd been out on the wires all day, all night. I hadn't had any sleep, it seemed, for weeks and no rest. And it was very, very difficult to mend a telephone wire in this mud. And after the Germans had stopped shelling a little while, we heard one of their big ones coming over. And normally, within reason, you could tell if one was going to land anywhere near or not. If it was, the normal procedure was to throw yourself down and avoid the shell fragments. This one, we knew, was going to drop near. My pal shouted and threw himself down. I was too damn tired even to fall down. I stood there. Next, I had a terrific pain in the back and the chest, and I found myself face downwards in the mud. My pal came to me. He tried to lift me up, and I said to him, Don't touch me. Leave me. I've had enough. Just leave me. The next thing, I found myself sinking down in the mud, and this time, I didn't worry about the mud. I didn't hate it anymore. It seemed like a protective blanket covering me. And I thought to myself, well, if this is death, it's not so bad. And then I found myself being bumped about. And I realized that I was on a stretcher. I suddenly realized that I wasn't dead. I realized that I was alive. I realized that if these wounds didn't prove fatal, that I should get back to my parents, to my sister, to the girl that I was going to marry. Um, so, so, so that's the emotion. And what I think about that tape is that it, it conveys the emotion the state men get into. And, and I think it's, it's quite powerful, you know. Um, I think uh, I think we've looked at the faults of other sorts of material. We looked at the good things about oral history. A little bit of a doubt about action stories, but I want to make two or three quick points if I can before the academics get on my bloody tits. Uh, firstly, veterans of junior rank. Gary disagrees with me here, but then he never attained any other rank than junior. Um, uh, are <laughs> unlikely to understand military strategy and higher tactics. So there is very little point or uh, of asking someone what they think of Haig in those days. There's very little point of asking them what they think of uh, Norman Schwarzkopf now. However, Gary wishes to make a point here. But it doesn't stop them having an opinion. I have lots of opinions. <laughs> he does have lots of opinions. I've heard some of them. Some of them, I mean, all that flat earth business he espouses is just nonsense. But, you know, and about, about the uh, sun revolving around him. Yeah. Well, but the, not, but the I'm, point is, they they will have opinions. It's just a historian. You'll get them in oral history, and you can't stop them. Remember, what I said you can't say. Did you ever meet? You could say, did you meet Norman Schwarzkopf? And this is one of the reasons why you <laughs> hate the word you testimony, meet any... isn't it? 
I hate the word testimony uh, because it, it's it's it gives it a sort of sanctimonious legal attitude when oral history should be regarded as old men waffling on within which there are points of extreme detail to historians or maybe points of interest, but not necessarily. Uh, but if you treat them as plaster saints, old men, the people we interview, swore. Farted, ran round chasing women. Some ran round chasing men. They, they, they. Some of them were cruel to animals. Some of them were nice to animals. Some of them were overly nice to animals. That's a really bad character. Um, Dysentery. Some were over. It's, it's just you know all of the, the, the. You've got all these things, and one other thing is that some people lie. They start. In one one is involuntary and they just start to believe what they're told on the TV. You'd never get the modern mind thinking like that. But if people keep telling you Haig was an idiot, they'll say Haig's an idiot. Uh, they'll also start spouting things about rats. You know, that's one good way. Or, or, or you get the myth that all petrol cans, all, all water cans used to be petrol cans and tasted of, of petrol. Well, that's very few of them. Actually, they were, they were new. They were petrol cans, but they'd never had petrol in them. And that's a sort of myth uh some people just lie we've only ever had about three and yet the, the, the competent historian in after interview analysis will spot that because there's too many giveaways i can think uh, of one point. one rampant liar but i'm not going to get us embroiled in there no in don't. International that's incident. why i'm not giving I know who you i know you're example. thinking of exactly the same person that i'm thinking of but let's not go there go on gary no well i don't think i'm going there but the one I'm going to raise is, again, from the, uh, I think from the Great War series in the 60s, the football match, which started from one individual giving a, an oral history of what happened at this football match. And now... There's know, a bloody memorial. People... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, uh, it, it is one recording. Luckily, I can't remember his name. It no, was I the can't. one I was thinking of. Um did it begin with D? And anyway, um, Taff, Taff Gillingham has utterly trashed it. There may or may not have been uh, a small kickabout between both sides involving the six Cheshires. That's about it. Uh, there was no football match. There was, you know, as such. And it, it's all... Uh, you ask a question, if, you've, if, you, if yeah. you can answer for me. So <clears throat> I've come across some problems in my oral research where I have had prisoners read other prisoners' testimonies and then they start comparing each other. And it's so infuriating because you can't separate the two anymore. And they're kind of, who's is whose memory? And it kind of gets very intertwined. Do you ever come across things like that? This is the people of men lacking their own confidence and their own recall. And they start to use other people. So you'll, you'll hear people quote from famous personal experience books, you know. And when those books are themselves dodgy, uh, the best example of that is Graves, Robert Graves' book, which is semi-fictionalized. You know, at the time, people said, God, this is a, a bit over the top at times. It's bollocks. I was there. It wasn't like that. And um, the best way is always interview people on their own and don't allow them to have in front of them uh, stuff. We're a bit late for doing Second World War interviews as well. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a good point. It, it's, um, you know, I'll credit you with some sterling work here, Peter, because it was realised that there weren't enough of the oral history as the Great War veterans were sadly passing away. Um, is, is there going to be more for future historians from the work that people like yourself do? We, we've done an incredible amount. I mean, all the Second World War stuff was finished 10 years ago really 
Um, Conrad Wood, another colleague of mine. I mention these people because they matter. Um, Conrad Wood did hundreds, hundreds of interviews. He tended to do short interviews, uh, which were essentially what's the most important thing that ever, uh, you know, exciting thing that ever happened to you. So that would be if they'd been on a big raid or a big battle, it would be just about that. Whereas I tended, because I've got, I tended to do 50 interviews with about the same unit. And then the idea was, and this analogy will, you, you have to just trust me. If, if, if you have one account and you put your hand in front of you, there's holes in it. Yep. If you have two accounts, you put it in front of you and the hands together fill up the holes. If you imagine 50 hands in front of you, you won't be able to see through it. You'll have a complete picture. And that's the idea. Now you'll have outliers, you know, uh, you know, people who, are, are not with the main and you're on both sides. So if you have a Stuka raid, some people say it was hell on earth. It was unbelievable. Our thousands killed. And someone else say, well, I've got the bombs dropped, but no one's hurt. And then you, you find that actually though, they're outliers that other people say, well, it was seven killed, two wounded, you know, whatever. Uh, you can get a balance of probability. I happen to be one of those historians who think that balance of probability is about as far as you're going to get. Uh, you must have established that with your work on George V, your groundbreaking work on George V. That's a change in tone there, Karen. I know, it was uh, reverent, groundbreaking and totally ignored, <laughs> probably for good well, reason. Gen- genius often is, Alex. I know, maybe when I'm dead people will read it. Well, well let's, hope, let, let's hope that's fairly soon then. <laughs> <laughs> Pete, what? sum this up for us. No, Matt, this is uh, this is what we're like. Well, the Pete ideal chance of the moment. Do you know why he's so <laughs> up himself today? Because usually my my ploy with him is to hug him repeatedly because he hates human contact. But we're in isolation, which is why he's so smug and mouthy. But you wait, you wait, Pete. Just you wait until the <laughs> next time I see you. I am going to cuddle, rape the shit out of you. Anyway, I will put Gary Gary's bloated body between. <laughs> <laughs> You're just bitter because Gary gets his brow mocked by me in Gallipoli and you don't. That your brow's too high picture. up. <laughs> I managed I to see, find that picture. I see a flaw in your plan, Peter, because if I turn up into this little, you know, there's going to be gathering. a Petey Kin sandwich. Oh, yes. See, flaw <laughs> in the plan. <laughs> I'll just oh. uh, tell my. Whatever <laughs> I say now would be wrong, <laughs> so I'm going to say nothing. Peter. Me too. <laughs> Pete. Can't Gary have a cuddle? Gary can have all the cuddles he wants. He's my Gary. Um, he is lovely. He's lovely. I think we should do a second World War one of these so Alina can say something. That's okay. Look, you guys, I don't And then we can all one. disagree with it. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> do you know what? On Wikipedia, I'll start bringing up some random facts and then you guys can basically tell me if I'm wrong. I like this idea. I thought that was our normal research. (laughs) (laughs) Pete, give us a final analysis. Oral history is not testimony. That's how you started it. Right. It's not testimony. It's a very useful weapon. And I always reach for the same analogy, just like Haig won on the Western Front with the all-arms battle. So the historian can only win by combining all sources of evidence and establishing a balance of probability. Amongst those, oral history is good to establish feelings and conditions and uh, and also cor- acts as a corrective for propaganda, such as the lads were all dying to get into action. Well, the lads were bloody dying to get into action. You know, uh, it adds do you see tone. what I mean? Yeah, it adds tone, but it should not be the hmm. basis of your It shouldn't research. be the basis of anything. Uh, but you, you'd equally, it, it, if you it, didn't use it, 
you're not doing a full job if it's there. That's right. And you don't if use it's it, there it, and it's good job. and it's you know you've got it's just like any other source. If you look at something and it sounds unbelievable, I had one bloke who was in a trench. Sorry, he was in no man's land, and he said four Germans came along a trench across a, an old communication trench in front of him, and he said he got his uh, knob carry or whatever it's called, big sticky thing, and he went bonk, 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 bonk on the helmets and knocked all four Germans out. Now, that may or may not have been true. Jack Dorgan, uh, who was a great veteran and told some great good stuff, I happened to find that story a little bit dodgy. Do you see what I mean? Because yeah. I don't think it, I just don't think it's that likely that four Germans could be uh, knocked out and you know put out of action in that way no and it's it's your job as a historian not just yours pete all of ours to weed out the chaff from the genuine stuff that can enrich your historical research but to totally ignore it when it's available to you uh you're you're wrong yeah i mean i learned i learned a lot about uh, living in germany in the cold war from gary uh for instance i'd interviewed hundreds of people hundreds of people about about the who are national servicemen all through the 50s 60s 70s 80s 90s right up to the present day not one of them had mentioned the beer man until i spoke to gary <laughs> and apparently it was like a milkman came on a thursday <laughs> night <laughs> on thursday night the beer man made a beer delivery now do you see what there's always something to learn and uh, that for me sums up oral history don't believe it all. I, do I believe there were beer men? I actually happen to, I do believe it because other people have confirmed it when I asked them off tape. But, um, but what you're um, saying is you didn't trust Gary. Well, no one trusts Gary. I mean, <laughs> TFL eventually had to let him go. I mean, it, it, was that giant black, it was that giant black hole in their finances that was unexplainable. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why he's coming to us on Zoom from his mansion in the Caribbean today. He's really well, not. it looks nice. For, for clarification, he's really not. There's a palm tree. There's a palm tree right behind his head, though. That's a, that's a paper shredder, Pete. Oh. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on and giving us um, an insight into oral history um, and how you really should use it, if you can, to enrich your research, but why you should be wary and professional in how you approach it we'll be releasing tomorrow some oral history that we've actually put together ourselves so uh colonel cameron mcnish retired um came on a conference call with us the other day to talk about op granby um, and you're going to hear tales of uh scud the dog what happens when you drink four cans of fosters after no alcohol for a month and numerous other colorful stories to go with his testimony of what it was like to be in iraq and curate yes pete Cameron did about a 30 real interview for the War Museum. He's a very amusing, and I urge you all to listen to this. It's, he's got a good memory, uh, and he's got some good stories, which I believe to be based in fact. Absolutely, um, especially the one about the pen pal and what happened when he finally met her. If you haven't heard that one, it's great. Also, on Sunday, we'll be back with uh, Richard Van Emden, who um, Gary stalks just yeah, Gary's now jumping up and down and doing the we are not worthy hand signal. He's very excited. We're going to have a cup of tea and a chat and biscuits because Alina won't come if there's not biscuits and it's World War One. Biscuits! <laughs> with Richard Van Emden. We're going to talk um, about all of the interviews he conducted with World War One veterans as well. Um, we're going to talk about his new book, Missing, and the need for closure on um, 
the First World War, and we're just going to have a general chat with him as well. And not only that, but because he's talking about his book Missing and the Need for Closure, uh, we also invited the absolutely lovely Director General of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, Victoria Wallace, as well, to hear her perspective on that. Just a nice... If only I'd remembered to mention my book, Voices from the Front, which I can't find. Well, I'm sure... I'm Pete, sure that Pete, get the book off the shelf and you can plug it. <laughs> Pete, actually, I'm sure that all your listeners will have learned such a lot from Pete today about oral history, about as much as he's taught me. Bastard. <laughs> <laughs> so, for the avoidance of doubt, Pete, tell everyone about your book that deals with uh, your life's work. My life's work, Voices from the Front, an oral history of the Great War. It came out with Profile, and it was the biggest failure I think they've ever had. <laughs> Change that now. Everybody go and buy it. Don't buy it second hand. I lost, uh, I think I lost, if it, if it hadn't been for uh, Max Hastings advertising my next book, The Last Battle, I think I'd have been well and truly buggered with them. Uh, it was called The Last Battle, by the way, because I thought that would be my last book after the Voices. <laughs> but then you thought, my, uh, ages ago that your Arras flying book would be the last book because your publisher told you to stop writing books about the air war and yeah and I wrote since. one more yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh you argumentative they, old tosser they, they, they did sack me <laughs> <laughs> so, right one more book about the first of all aviation and your sacks Ah, here's AC Spalling. You're sacked. (laughs) (laughs) But you also did in the same year, I believe, that fantastic book of 1918, A Very British Victory, which I think is one of your best. Yes, it's my favourite. I wrote it with that title to annoy the Americans. And again, my publishers pointed out that I was entirely successful in that. (laughs) It sold not a single copy in the United States. And could I keep my sense of humour to my something self? (laughs) um, for your benefit, Alex, while you was away, we uh, suggested another podcast with Alina, and uh, it would be, was the Second World War just not a continuation of the First World War? No, we can do a uh, Second World War using oral testimony from the cast of Allo Allo. She's rubbing her eyes again. Yeah. I'm sure that girl's been drinking. The memoirs Save of me. René Artois. <laughs> I'd like to read that. Anybody can hear me, save me, save me now. Can I just say, Gary... <laughs> Gary has the physical appearance and sexual potency of René Artois. He does. Now you've pointed that out, I can't stop looking at him. Guys, thank you very much. Join us tomorrow when we will be talking to Tracy Borman about Thomas Cromwell. I literally cannot wait for that one. It's going to be awesome. We're talking uh, about Wolf Hall and Hilary Mantel's trilogy and how much it can be relied on uh, in terms of historical accuracy, uh, why it doesn't matter that you can't 100% all of the way through, and just how we found um, her interpretation of such a pivotal character in Henry VIII's reign. So join us for that. Join us on Sunday because, Gary, you ready? You ready? Yeah. Yeah. Richard Van Emden's on on Sunday. <gasps> oh, yes! I'm starting a Mexican wave. Yeah, yeah. Hey, it's your favourite. He's <laughs> my favourite. He's exactly my isn't he? favourite. He I is once, a... I once deliberately poisoned Pete so he couldn't do the Great War for him, and uh, Richard Van Emden stepped in like a knight in shining armour. He, he is the nicest gorgeous. man. Gorgeous, gorgeous. He is. I've He's got, got all a... that luxurious hair, hasn't he, Pete? He has got more hair than me, you, and uh, Gary put together. Yeah. Tell him I've got all these books except his new one. Wink, wink. Oh, you mean missing, 
the need for closure after the Great War. Yes, because we are talking about that book. And because we're talking about that book, oh, we went and got Victoria Wallace as well, and she's so lovely. So she came on and she's actually told us loads of really little interesting tidbits about um, Commonwealth war graves and setting up cemeteries and some of the the crap, basically, that they have to go through. Yeah, I know, but she's not Richard Van Emden. No, No, be fair. Come on. But there's a level of gorgeousness at which Richard sort of gets to, and that's just blinds you to anything else that's going on. Are you saying Victoria, Alina and I are the ugly ones in that podcast? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Thanks. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oi, Gary, René Artois, you've got the same dent in your forehead. Look, there it is. And you'll be dead. (laughs) And you'll be dead soon, just like him, the way you're getting on, you fat bastard. (laughs) in case this has not featured at all, I hate Spurs. <laughs> Do you know, <laughs> we've, uh, we've actually got a um, podcast coming up later on and uh, we advertise next week's where we're talking about the most iconic um, battle in British history. And my nomination is the Battle of the Bridge when Eden Hazard and the outside of his foot made them look like total wankers because they thought they were going to win the league. Doesn't he play for Barcelona or Real Madrid or something? Edin, yeah, he left us. But on or Oldham. Oldham, no, Gary, your obsession with Oldham needs needs to go away now. You've never even been there. I, have. I haven't actually. No. <laughs> I have. We're hanging up on you now. Go home. Do some work. You've got a book. Bye. <laughs> Thanks so much, guys. And remember, people, stay safe. And more importantly, if you can, stay at home. This is Nighthawk signing off. Hey, you didn't notice, but uh, I had the uh, Liverpool-Watford game on going in the background. That was the one that Liverpool lost. <laughs> yes. Uh, all I'll say is the one. Yeah. Uh, and, and my second point would be you can F-R-O, and I leave it to the visitors to uh, work out what that might mean. Gary is a visitors. good Visitors, so visitors uh, or listeners, one of the two. Is safe, isn't it, Gary? Yeah. All right. Good night, night, Hulk. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. <laughs>